Hi, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Alessandra Wall, and we've got a fascinating topic for you today. How are you, Alessandra? I'm doing well, thanks. You know, we live in the most educated society in, in the history of the world, and yet so many people feel unhappy and unfulfilled. I'll bet it's not an easy question for you to answer. Why not? Um, it's, it's not an easy question. It's probably easier for me than most people, given my background, since I'm a psychologist. So let's try to see if I can make my degree proud. Um, with, with regards to the people I've worked with, I think the big thing that we're seeing now that's leading people to feel really unhappy has to do with the way they're viewing the world and they're viewing themselves, right? So um, the way we look at things, our thoughts, our beliefs, our assumptions, are directly connected to the way we feel. So if you find yourself feeling really unfulfilled or happy, don't ask yourself what's going on. Ask yourself, what is it about what's going on that makes you feel that way, right? That's the key to most of what we do in psychology and yeah. most of what I do in coaching. And you know, how much of this, uh, how much of this, how we look at ourselves is due to uh, social media because we're comparing ourselves all the time now to people who seem like they have a better life than we do we're, we're more attuned to what other people seem to be going through does that does that mess up our own self-perception definitely i mean it's, it's something that i see on a daily basis no matter what all of us even before social media right we had this idea of this uh this um personal persona and then and then we had this public persona. But the problem now is that this public persona has taken on these new proportions because the public persona that everybody else has online is a completely filtered, curated, and, and airbrushed persona. So we're all comparing ourselves to completely unrealistic yeah. ideas and models. My dad used to say that most of us want to be as happy as other people are. Mm -hmm but other people really aren't that happy. They're not as happy as they seem on Facebook, I guess is what I'm trying to say. No, they aren't. And that's a huge problem. Like we're all caught up in trying to only highlight our successes, our great moments, our best, um, our best selfies. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you, women tend to take more selfies than men, so I don't know how many selfies you take, but do you, do you take selfies? Well, yeah, I'm an outlier, though. You know, I, I have a brand, and I'm, I don't have a public re relations company, so I push myself out there a lot, absolutely. Okay. How many selfies do you take before you choose one to post? I don't, uh, I don't take a lot of selfies, but confession, I do edit the photos before I post them. <laughs> there we go. I <laughs> which mean, is, I... Which is completely unnatural, right? It's not me and my natural habitat. It's, it's Photoshopped or something. Right, I get what you're saying. There's a filter. I, I will confess, I've taken selfies of like, you know, that here I turn 40, here's my first shot in the morning, whatever. Right. But that's not my first shot. It's like my 15th first shot in the morning. There might be no filters. But as, if, I, as if that first shot's not good enough for the rest of the world to see. Exactly. And the thing is, that's what everybody does all the time. And so now, as social animals, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Yeah. We have this bar for success that's completely unrealistic. Mm. We all know it consciously, but unconsciously, we don't process that knowledge. And it's not just true for visuals, it's true for audibles as well. I taught a class this morning, and it was really difficult getting people to speak up. And I suspect it wasn't because I hadn't created a warm environment. I invited them to talk. 
I tried to open the door as wide as I could. I think they might be in a work culture that doesn't encourage speaking up. And well, so, it's, you know, you can do what you can to play over this stuff, but uh, it's, it's challenging and it's, it's pervasive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, think about, this is one of the things that I've been dealing a lot with, uh, both in my coaching clients and in my patients, as I see more and more millennials and now Gen Z coming in. But they're in a culture where a lot of communication is online. And online is really easy to write a lot, to write anonymously. Yes. And in, and in doing that, to be able to uh, voice thoughts in a way that can be incredibly inflammatory. So there's huge risks in talking because anytime you say something that isn't approved of by everybody else, you really run the risk of being destroyed socially hmm. online and that carries over onto our, our behavior in person with people. So this is fascinating. So earlier we said that, well, we won't post the first selfie because it needs to be filtered and improved Mm-hmm. But, but now we're saying that if we're, if we're not uh, willing to speak up, because what we really have on our mind needs to be edited, and we don't want to edit it, it's almost, mm-hmm. the, it's almost the opposite. That creates a real yin-yang in, in, in the psyche, I would think. Well, I don't know if it's the opposite. I think, I think it's more of the same problem, right? We are completely edit, editing, filtering and managing oh, oh, what, we, what we put out there. And because we're editing so much, we would, say, we would just assume, we would just rather say nothing. In person. Yes, okay, I'm with you now. Because we don't have that lag or that break to okay. edit. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is pervasive for a lot of people, but I can tell you working with women especially, because we are social creatures mm-hmm. and we're connectors, you see it even more so than with men. And it exists with men too. And I think yeah. part of it is cultural, part of it is generational. But you were asking if social media has made things more difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we've touched on two major groups like millennials and, and, and women. Um, to be clear, everybody has this challenge of being happy and fulfilled. Yep. Um, but these two have become almost like movements, like the millennials have a name. I know we're naming cultures now. Um, and it turns out the, the, the female thing or the Me Too thing, I, I suppose that's a much different. Uh, denotation and connotation with me too mm-hmm. um, and yet you spend a lot of time uh, looking at uh, and I don't know what your client base is if it's uh, favoring gender uh, to the female side but we should give women and young people a little bit of extra attention in this area is that the right thing to do well yeah yes I have to think about this because I agree with you these are things that that occur with everybody. I've had conversations with men about the topics that I discuss or that I present on with females and I'll get a lot of pushback where I'm told, well, we have imposter's complex too. We deal with wanting to be perceived positively too. And and I agree with that. I think there's just a difference in the way the expectations are set up for the different groups. And one of the reasons I end up talking about millennials and women a lot. You're asking, who do I work with? As a psychologist, my specialty is anxiety. I work with very smart, very driven professional people who are stressed out and whose lives are so um, overcome by this stress that they're not functioning well. As a coach, I initially wanted to work with the same group, but at a different level. I wanted to work with people who... uh, 
were high performance professional men and or women who on paper had it all but were unfulfilled hmm. right and what i ended up getting the people who ended up most coming into my office were young professional women so millennial women so i got this whole insight on specifically that small group of people yeah that was a double dip at both millennials and female yeah and so then i got to see to really talk to both groups to i got to get the perspective on both groups and kind of understand what were some of the primary uh, roadblocks that they faced and again and again the big ones i saw were what you just talked about this inability to speak up to say what you mean mean what you say and this inability to be heard right so we had these groups of people who really struggled to to be honest and open half of it was because they struggled to define what their own needs were and yep. therefore they were pursuing things that didn't necessarily fulfill them in the right ways the other part of it was because they didn't feel that they could speak up and then a lot of them when they did speak up weren't being heard meaning the the other side of the group let's say the non-millennials or whatever the majority group was was coming at them with so much of their own biases and preconceived notions that they were pushing back and so that led to um, a sense of helplessness mm -hmm. uh, the sense that one really wasn't in control of your own destiny or your or had any agency and when you started this question, why do why are people so unhappy or seemingly unhappy or unfulfilled now? My big uh, go-to answer at this point is that a lot of us feel disenfranchised. We feel like uh, the systems that are set up against us are so big that we have no power to really affect change. And I completely disagree with that. Yeah, I disagree with it too. Uh and it's frustrating for me. I mean, I don't, I don't do approach this from a clinical psychology point of view, but just encouraging people to stand up for themselves or ask questions or reach out. It's very, very challenging. And, and, and it seems to me like uh, the younger generations are communicating even less. I, I told somebody the other day, an entire generation of people have stopped saying you're welcome. <laughs> you know, if you thank a younger person, they say, no problem. There you go. Mm -hmm. um, um, sure thanks. thing. Sure thing. Yeah, uh, perfect. I hear that a lot, but I never hear anybody say you're welcome. These the, these normal exchanges that we thought were pretty uh, uh, meaningless or uh, frivolous. It, it, it turns out that there's an underpinning there that allows uh, communication in a real sense. When you start leaving out that little stuff, bad things can happen. Um, you mentioned the word. I don't know if it was a term, but you mentioned complex um, a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Is that a psychology term that you used? Um, I cannot even remember the context in which well, we're I talking about. We were talking about the, the, this idea of, uh, of feeling good about yourself as a complex. Oh, 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 yes. Um, the, the, um, the imposter complex, right? Thank you. Sorry, well, I couldn't flesh, that flesh that out for us, imposter complex. So the imposter complex is something both men and women suffer from. So it's, it's uh, universally affecting people. But it is this idea that we feel like we are fooling other people, that we are not really as good as, as capable as, as wonderful as people might assume we are. And what that leads to is this constant state of anxiety, stress, or fear that we're going to be found out. 
for women especially, but for everybody, no matter what, this is something that's been talked a lot about in business and in women in leadership, that when they're given positions in leadership, it's not that they lack the skills to fulfill those roles, but rather that they worry that they don't have the capacity or the ability to fulfill them, even though they do, because they're walking around with this imposter complex, this belief that they fooled everybody and they really aren't as good as everyone thinks they are. So what an interesting self-fulfilling prophecy. If I get up every day and try to convince people that I have a lot of money, but I don't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. over time, I, be, I become an imposter. Over time, I become unable to be happy because I'm portraying myself as someone other than who I really am. And that's, just, and that's just money. We haven't even talked about selfies <laughs> or reputation or the things that I would say about my character. You know, I'm such and such a person. My big thing now is all these people that are hyper patriotic, but they can't name their senators. You know? Right. So we're pretending to be really care about the country, but we don't know jack about politics. So there's a little bit of that going on too. Let's talk about anxiety. Um, I assume there are all kind of clinical terms about anxiety from, from low level to high level anxiety. Could you give us an idea about uh, low level anxiety compared to a high level form of anxiety just for conversational purposes? Sure. So one of the things I remind people all the time of is that being anxious, being nervous, being stressed, that these are normal and healthy things. Stress is normal. Stress is normal. Stress is healthy. Yeah. Without stress, you don't grow, right? Without okay. stress, you don't become better. So, but there's a difference between experiencing stress, right? Because the environment is pushing against you and responding to that stress or that stressor, which is normal and healthy, right? And being stressed out all the time such that you are constantly worrying about performing, fitting in, doing well enough, failing other people. When you see that level of worry um, show up nearly consistently, like every day, uh, much of the time during your day, to the point where it starts to affect your ability to function. Like you're tired all the time, you don't want to go hang out with people, you wake up in a state of anxiety. Now we're talking about clinical anxiety and clinical stress. And we could be right? talking about other forms of manifestation, like uh, not just sleeplessness, but um, uh, skin breaks out, mm-hmm. uh, jitters, yep. overeating. Uh, over medicating and just to just to let our listeners know how serious this problem is and how it almost has no boundaries this little thing that we're talking about the opioid crisis is linked to some extent I mean I think there are people who are in legitimate pain Alessandra who probably need uh, painkillers but we know that uh, we know that it's really out of control now right we've got people in mid-level anxiety taking pain medication is that possible Yeah, because if you think about what most opioids do, if people react to them properly, like I'm one of those people, I just had shoulder surgery, you give me an opioid and it makes me itch, it's unpleasant, I don't like it. But for people who don't have those kinds of reactions, it numbs you, Yeah. right? Opioids don't make you happy or anything like that, they just numb you such that you don't care about things. So there are people who might have been prescribed opioids for for a legitimate reason, a surgery, something like that, but then they realize that the that the effects can be used for other things, like I need to fall asleep and I haven't been able to sleep for hours, or I'm constantly worried I need to go into this meeting and not 
and not feel my heart racing, right? And right. so now people are medicating for different reasons, but it's not just opioids. If you consider alcohol, you know, the idea of I need to take a glass of wine every night to unwind makes no sense to me. If you need to take a glass of wine every night, and we're not talking about somebody who has alcoholism or anything else, but right. you need to take it, then what you're saying is that there's an underlying problem that isn't being addressed every night. You're just medicating it. You're covering it. You're treating symptoms, not the problem. Right. right? We do with coffee too. Right? People are, yeah. people are chronically sleep deprived, so they take coffee to manage. And by the way, I consume those two things, coffee and wine. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's a matter of degree, right? So we open this part of the conversation talking about the degrees of anxiety. And so would you say that neuroses, does everyone have neuroses or is that an extreme, uh, extreme form of anxiety that a lot of people don't have? Well, it's interesting because it's not a term I hear very often anymore, the term neuroses. It's, uh, um, but everybody has things that they worry about. Everybody has insecurities. Okay. I think that's a term that, that people are more familiar with at this point and probably comfortable with. So everybody worries. Everybody, most people, I'm sure there are some people out there. The vast majority of people have things that they feel insecure about. And those things impact how we feel on a daily basis, how we show up at work and with the people we love. But when it starts to take over your life, okay. when you wake up and feel crummy all the time or start hating yourself, now we're talking about something that's clinically relevant. Okay. So uh, let's say we've got a bunch of people listening that want to be more successful. They want to work around, uh, they want to work around uh, disabling forms of anxiety. They want to uh, be happier and more fulfilled. What are some simple, and I realize therapy is probably uh, some sort of a long-term iterative process is best for them, but if you had this short, uh, short format for the purpose of uh, some quick advice, what would you suggest? That's one of my favorite questions, actually, because there are tons of things you can do, right? So the first thing to remember is what you and I agree on, which is that we are each capable through our daily actions and choices of making a huge difference of creating the change we want to see in the world or in ourselves. So yeah, therapy is wonderful and some people need it, but most people can benefit from a lot less. One of the things I love convincing people to do, and if you try it at home, you'll see it will be very hard in the beginning, I promise it works over time, is this thing I call the art of nothing. So it's rediscovering the art of sitting around and staring into space. Do you remember what that was like, like when you would sit on a front porch and then watch the world go by or sit around somebody's kitchen table without well, a, TV a, or something going on and just chat? Oh, as a kid, it was painful because it was, it was boring, right? But, but now it, it smacks of, um, in a bit, in a way, it smacks of yoga or meditation, doesn't it? This stillness. It's a luxury nowadays yeah. because we're constantly bombarded with information and with noise. This information sometimes is um, the things we believe the world tells us we need to be. Sometimes it's the way we try to distract ourselves from our own stresses when what we need, what the human brain needs is the ability to disconnect. So this first step, like this initial magic bullet, and it's a little bit of that, try practicing two minutes a day of sitting and doing absolutely nothing. Not meditating, not deep breathing, not listening to 
uh, yoga or okay. uh, music, but literally like sitting down. I do this with my patients in my office. Uh, I have a front stoop, so I sit them outside on the front stoop for five minutes. Yeah. They get so anxious initially, and they'll tell me. And they'll catch themselves, and they'll catch how ridiculous it is to be anxious about not doing anything. So if the idea of sitting around and doing nothing freaks you out, you know you have to do it more than anyone else. That's great. Right? And there are plenty of time, ways to do this. I did this talk in uh, London, and everybody laughed when I said this. And I told them, you laugh because you know it's true. I said, so for example, when you go to the loo, we're in London, excuse when you go to the loo, leave your phones at your desk. And everybody laughed, and I'm like, because you know you take your phones to the bathroom with you, right? That, that, just that, just monotasking going to the bathroom, or when you turn the microwave on, not washing dishes or checking your phone or doing something else, just be for a few minutes. Over time, yeah. two, sorry, two will turn into five, will turn into ten, and you'll notice your anxiety level drops significantly. So this is us making choices. This is us taking ownership of our own thoughts, emotions, and behavior. Um, but here's the thing, and here's what I think is going to be really hard for a lot of people is, is there are a lot of people working against us on this plan. Have you ever tried to find a restaurant that didn't have a television in it? Um, yeah, that's why I go sit outside at restaurants. Yeah. So society has set us up to not be this type of person, this type of anxiety-free, stress-free to the extent that it's reasonable to say that. Um, and that's why it takes focus and maybe help from somebody like you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a choice, right? Yeah. And, and just by noticing that doing nothing, and most of us are scared of doing nothing because we're in this movement of being busy and we tell ourselves that if we are busy, then we have value. Right. So if we're not busy, if I'm sitting around in my yard and staring into space while drinking my coffee, that I am not producing. If I'm not producing as an individual, I don't have value. If I don't have value, people won't like me. Mm. Right? That's kind of the way. I know it seems strange, but those are the leaps our brain makes. Oh, sure. So you, you're, if you as an individual are listening to this and are stressed and find yourself feeling anxious or worn out at the end of the day, trust me, two minutes at a time, try it once a day to start. It's, it's addictive. So I guarantee that once you get through the initial anxiety, you'll want to do more of it. Sit and stare into space. Daydream. Let your brain go wherever it wants to go. Um, it, is, it is a luxury, and nothing is going to happen in two minutes that's going to keep you from being a successful human being. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, let's uh, finish by tying together uh, uh, this idea of thoughts, behavior, and emotion. I'm a big fan of Dr. Albert Ellis. He's passed now. You're probably going to tell me he's old school. No, but, no, no, no. This is very relevant even today. But for, for those of you not familiar with Dr. Ellis, uh, he, his, he post, uh, postulated and actually uh, uh, was quite well received, I think, during his lifetime about the idea that what we think about determines to a great extent how we feel, our emotions, and then how we feel determines to a great extent how we behave. You subscribe to that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's what we started talking about way at the beginning, but the way you want to think of uh, the way you react to the world, emotions or behaviors, is that everything is driven by how you look at what's happening to you. So 
I'm not upset with somebody for being late because they're late. I'm upset with somebody for being late because I might assume that they take my time for granted. Mm. If I assume the person's in a car accident, I'm not going to be upset. I'm going to be worried. Mm. It's not what's happening to me that makes me feel a certain way. It's what I assume it means. So my thoughts lead me to have an, an emotional reaction, a feeling. And based on those things, I'm going to have a reaction. So the person whom I think is taking advantage of my time, I'm going to ditch or yell at when they finally get there. Right. Right? Right. Well, you are delightful. You, you put a, a very complicated problem in language that everybody can understand, and we certainly appreciate the tips. Where can people find out more about your work? I understand you're doing some speaking. Uh, I'll bet there's a good book in your future. Where can people find you? Um, my website is Life in Focus SD, the S and the D stand for San Diego, which is where I'm based out of, um, .com. And whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or uh, Facebook, you can find me with the handle at Life in Focus SD. And then I'm on LinkedIn lately a lot because I'm enjoying. Well, no wonder you like to go outside on the porch for two minutes. It's beautiful weather in San Diego. We can't say that about every place in the country. <laughs> Uh, I certainly appreciate your expertise, Doctor, and you are uh, a delight to have on the podcast. Let's visit again sometime if you, if you feel like we might be able to help some more people. I would love it. Thank you very much for having me and uh, for letting me talk about some of my favorite topics. Dr. Alessandra Wall, everybody. Find out more about her at lifeinfocussd.com. Thank you, Doctor. Take care.